Welcome. Now, my name is D. Ludlow. Now, before we get into this episode, go to the description, click the link and get your M&A Mastery Toolkit. This is a free download, which gives you some of the tools and resources that you need to start your M&A journey. Don't forget, go to the description, click the link. It's a free download and enjoy the episode. Hello, hello. So this is morning for me. And this morning, um, I'm going to sip my peppermint tea <laughs> and talk about a load of stuff that none of you want to hear. <laughs> but today I'm going to cover a load of different things. So I'm going to be talking about uh, macro trends, um, where I think the economy is going, um, what, what I think has sparked the indicators of economic health, and plenty of other stuff, you know, like debt, stock market, house prices, supply and demand, jobs, the USA, um, petrodollar, Japan, China, and a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, hopefully you find it interesting. This is episode 30. Um, so this is the 30th episode of the Ludlow Street Podcast. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Ludlow Street Podcast, where we interview aspiring entrepreneurs who thrive off innovation. We look at how different walks in life have similar journeys, similar obstacles, but all have different whys. And now your host, D. Ludlow. So I'm just going to start this off by, um, look, you can listen to what I'm going to say, and then I advise you do your own research into this. I'm taking this from facts and figures that are out there. You can all get your hands on these if you look hard enough. And yeah, I just want to say, look, don't listen to somebody just because they're in property or they've been in property for a long time. Because a lot of property investors don't research macroeconomics at all. Um, they say property prices double every 10 to 12 years, which is also false. Um, but yeah, you need to do your own research because it's easy to, uh, you know, start looking for confirmation bias online. Don't let, you know, cognitive dissonance kick in and sway you from the truth and what could or what will eventually happen. So that's what I want to start out by saying, but you need to look at different things that's going on. You know, for a start, we need to look at furlough. Now, furlough was great for a lot of businesses and a lot of people. Um, some more than others, you know, but at some point furlough will come to an end, end of October. And what's going to be the impact of what, what that's going to bring? You know, how many people are actually going to be going back to their jobs? Unemployment's already gone up. Um, I would predict that <laughs> unemployment's going to rocket, um, by the end of October, um, due to furlough ending. And yeah, all these, uh, stimulus packages are great, uh, for the short term, you know, prop the markets up but when you really need to look at you know what exposure do the banks really have because you know i've seen products well firstly when uh the lockdown first happened instantly banks rightly so you know all the lenders try to deleverage as quick as possible um dropped a lot of their products dropped the loan to values and then they started you know increasing deposits but even now, if you see the products that are on the market, the ones that lenders are actually advertising, um, if you try and use them, they always change the goalposts. So this is from my experience. And if you look at, say, the average first-time buyer right now, okay, let's say the property is 100K. is uh, value for at 100K. is on the market for 100K. And this person ends up 
offering 110 because of all this pent up demand. And then they think, great, offer accepted. They then go to their lender. The lender uh, offers them a product. Um, they send the valuer out. The valuer downvalues it to say, I don't know, 90 because of COVID and the current circumstances. Now, this is happening quite a lot. Um, and then they got to find an extra 20K. So this first time buyer who probably hasn't even got an extra 5K now has to find an extra 20K. This is just an example. So when you look at house sales and completions right now, I'd be very shocked if many of these house sales actually complete. Um, you know, the banks are heavily exposed. It makes me think, you know, when you start increasing deposits and dropping loan to values, it does make you wonder what's really going on um, in the banking sector. You know, especially when 75% of house sales require a mortgage and if the availability of credit isn't on demand like it was uh, pre-COVID, then it does make it a lot harder for people to complete on houses. So, you know, I know that they put in these incentives of, you know, permitted development incentives, stamp duty incentives. They're trying to prop the market up. Now, the, the, these sort of incentives would never be put in place if they didn't feel a threat to what's happened. Now, yeah, the, the market did close and there was no transactions for a period of months because of lockdown, which is totally understandable. But it's hard to measure the real impact of COVID as of today, because the amount of QE that's been done um, is making things look a little bit better than they're actually doing. So there's a lot more confidence there than there should be, uh, from my opinion. You know, and I love how when I've asked uh, people in property over the last couple of months how they feel about the property market, and the usual response I have is, you know, uh, as long as supply and demand is there, um, property prices will continue to rise. So let's bet on property. Now, my, my only issue with this is if, you know, there's for a start, there's always demand for property. We don't build enough property year by year to keep up with population is in an exponential growth. So there's always going to be demand there. And again, we're always at a lack of supply because we don't build enough houses. But the biggest issue of all is the availability of credit. Now, as you've seen when lockdown first happened and COVID become a world pandemic, instantly banks deleveraged, uh, pulling most of their products. Um, no one really wanted to lend any money. And when things go wrong, um, from a macro point of view, this is what happens. And so if 75% of house sales require a mortgage and credit is not available, then what do you think happens to house prices? If people can't actually purchase houses for a period of time, what happens to the value of the underlying asset? Now, remember, I'm a property investor myself. Um, I don't want to be negative about this, but I want to be realistic. And I do believe there will always be an opportunity in a crisis. I do believe we're heading for a crisis. Um, but I'd rather be realistic more than optimistic as being cautious while investing. Um, always gives you a more chance of longevity in the asset class you're in. So that's why I do it. You know, it's not for everyone. You know, I, I am very aggressive when I do invest, but I'm also very cautious when things aren't looking good, which, you know, brings me on to my second topic of today, which is uh, the stock market. Um, somehow we're hitting all time highs <coughs> uh, just as they announced a recession. <coughs> You know, it shows what's going on, really. You know, the, the whole 
stock market and housing market is being propped up. Um, you know, the government are out here buying up ETFs, trackers, doing whatever they can to prop up the markets. And when you look at um, the currency supply expansion right now, you know, if you um, use uh, the 2008 financial crisis as an example, so, you know, the, 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 the Federal Reserve printed $2 trillion between 08 and 2012. Um, you know, and just remember, the more you print, the less money is worth. Um, but when you put this into perspective, they printed almost the same amount of money in a couple of months throughout COVID. Now, this is where you need to have a think about the impact of debt and managing debt from a government point of view. Uh, and I have moved on from housing, but I just want to say, you know, the housing market, the reason why it was booming since 09, you know, we had a crazy amount of currency expansion. Central banks just literally printed their way, their way out of the subprime mortgage collapse. You know, so don't develop this uninformed opinion that house prices can only go up because it's not true. Because debt becomes a problem when you can't pay it back. So let's say there's no credit to buy houses, then not many houses will be bought. Now, there's more corporate debt than ever, more consumer debt than ever. And, you know, you probably heard the saying of if someone sneezes on Wall Street, then someone in London catches a cold. So this is why I'm going to be talking about the US and how it can impact us. So firstly, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, I'm looking at an article right now on CNN Business and June 24th, 2020, the article read, the recession is much worse than the IMF expected and to hit jobs catastrophically. Now, the IMF focuses on macroeconomics and the issues in financial strength. Now, they themselves are doubtful and they're already forecasting a very bad recession. You know, and also if you look back even the back end of last year, you know, especially is still going on today, the geopolitical tensions between the US and China. Um, you know, Goldman Sachs spoke out back then saying that this year, um, the investment environment could be very volatile due to the US and China trade war. I'll talk about China a little later. And look, I'm not going to go as far back as the Bretton Woods system. Um, but what I will talk about is, you know, August 15th, 1971, Richard Nixon announced that the US would no longer convert dollars to gold at a fixed value. So they basically abandoned the gold standard and created what is known as a fiat currency. Now, fiat currencies have a 100% failure rate. The average life cycle is around 25 years. And the benefit of a fiat currency uh, gives central banks greater control over the economy because they can control how much money is printed. But remember, the more you print, the less the currency is worth. But then in 1975, OPEC formed the petrodollar. This meant that all Saudi oil transactions were done in the US dollar. Saudi would get US military protection and hardware. And this meant that all local currencies would need to uh, be converted into the dollar to buy oil, which would keep the value of the dollar up. So look, printing money is nothing new. No, but when people like the World Bank or the IMF speak out about something, it's time to listen. So the World Bank has already said that we're on the fourth wave. They say this is the fastest, largest and most broad wave yet. Now, if we go back to the first wave back in 1970 to 89, Latin America borrowed money to improve their growth as an emerging market. No, by 78, the debt was around 159 billion. Four years later, it doubled to 327 billion in 82. 
Now, major economies, they had the hike up interest rates while they battled inflation. Mexico conserved their debt, and it was literally a knock-on effect from there. We had countries like Argentina, Mexico, Brazil. They all had to weaken their currency next to the US dollar. I think there's about 27 countries that had to restructure their debt worldwide, and there's about 14 in Latin America. But look, the second wave was 1990 to 2001. East Asia had a financial crisis and they back then relied on the IMF. And then shortly after that, we had the Mexico currency crisis. Now, the third wave, we all know what happened here. It was the, the infamous global financial crisis. And now the World Bank are saying that we're already on the fourth wave. Now, personally, if the World Bank and the IMF, the, you know, the creators of money, when they speak out, I personally think it's time to listen. Then you got to look at some of the bigger companies, the corporations. Um, you got American Airlines who are laying off a third of their workforce. You have Delta Airlines who are looking to lay off 7,000 pilots. A lot of these are on quite substantial salaries. Um, they look at the UK, the UK's largest retail chain into went into administration. The UK's largest restaurant chain, CDG, went into administration. So for me, this shows how overexposed <clears throat> a lot of these companies were pre-COVID. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many companies that are finding this very hard at the moment. And there's so many that probably won't come out the back, the back end of it. Then look at uh, you know, the US has hit a record of 13 years straight without reaching 3% GDP growth. Um, and at 17.9% of GDP in fiscal year 2020, uh, the federal deficit is almost twice as large than it was at its worst of the Great Recession in uh, 2009. So the big question is, can the debt be serviced? So, you know, the central bank can reduce typical debt crisis by dropping real and uh, nominal interest rates. But when the debt crisis becomes more serious, then this makes this a lot harder. So when rates hit zero, uh, they have no choice but to start deleveraging because they can no longer service the debt. You know, what what is debt good for? You know, debt can help you grow your business. Debt is a lot cheaper than equity. It can mitigate your risk. But if you can't service the debt and it gets too much, then what? So if we look at macroeconomics, right? So uh, if you think of monetary and fiscal policy, they're two terms used in macroeconomics. Uh, they talk in ways to shift aggregate demand in one direction or another and often ways to stimulate aggregate demand to shift it to the right. So just quickly, so monetary policy is basically the way the government regulates the amount of money in circulation in a nation's economy. Um, basically the controlling of the money supply. So in a recession, um, to control the money supply and affect interest rates and shift aggregate demand, they have a couple of tools. One, they lower the reserve requirement so banks can create more money. Uh, two, they can lower the discount rate so banks can loan out more money or they can just buy bonds, which also puts money in the system, which increases money supply. So basically aggregate demand increases. And to shrink the money supply is basically the total opposite of expanding the money supply. So increasing interest rates, etc. But there is a reserve requirement ratio that's meant to be in place. You know, so an amount that is a percentage of deposits that banks must hold in reserve. So it's the percent that they cannot loan out. But personally, I would be surprised if this is anywhere near what was initially agreed post 2008. 
And then we have fiscal policy, which is the government's ability to raise taxes and spend the money it raises. So where the issue starts is um, when it comes to monetary policy. So we pulled the interest rates lever. Um, we printed money. Uh, we printed more money and we've bought government bonds. Now, <clears throat> for me, looking at the stock market, so the stock market to me isn't a true indicator of economic health anyway. But if it wasn't for the tech stocks, uh, I'm not sure what the uh, the market would even look like. So I think we need a total restructure in our economy and financial system, which leads me to, you know, the Bank of England was talking about adopting a cryptocurrency back in January. So they're saying over the next couple of years, our plan is to uh, introduce a cryptocurrency. So when you look at tech, so tech is in exponential growth and it has been for a very long time. Doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime soon. So we need to improvise and adapt and realize the shift that's happening in front of our eyes. And if you look at China and all the things that the Chinese are doing, you know, will we have a change of hands for the global reserve currency at some point? Who knows? But, you know, what I do know is that deflationary assets have been outperforming other asset classes throughout COVID because, you know, people are looking for safe havens. So gold and silver have been doing well. Uh, a load of different cryptos, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Chainlink, the list goes on. So many cryptos that I like. <laughs> um, but yeah, we need to look at different ways to invest our money because typically when one, a one asset class isn't doing so good, a different one is performing. So it's always good to have some base knowledge on various different asset classes. Um, you know, always make sure you uh, know enough about the asset class before you invest in it. Do your due diligence. But yeah, I think it's always good to look at other ones too. You know, I love property. I love uh, crypto. I love bullion. I love stocks. You know, I love loads of different asset classes. But there's also times when and when not to enter the market. And then you have to think, you know, are most people's savings adequate for a downturn? You know, how many months could they survive? Because we've just seen businesses unable to survive for a period of a couple of months. Billion dollar businesses that couldn't survive. So <clears throat> when you put that into perspective, you know, it's like every business. If income falls and it becomes less in expenditure, then you get into trouble unless you have good savings. Um, I think it's coming to light now which businesses are well capitalized, which ones have a strong balance sheet and which ones don't. And as I mentioned, we've been on a good run. You know, asset prices have been well overinflated for a long time. And that's when it's always good to look at history. So uh, if you look at the Japanese asset boom, um, from 86 to 91, asset prices was well overinflated. And then the bubble popped in late 91. And they call it the lost decade. So Japan basically had no economic growth for around 10 years. And if you look at the Nikkei, it's been 30 years now, 34 years. And uh, Japan's never conquered previous highs. Uh, but th then you got to look at what Iceland did back in 2008. You know, they allowed their three major banks to fail. They locked some of the bankers up. Um, you know, but the banks were like 10 times the GDP of Iceland, you know, uh, but the stock market collapsed. 80% of the stock market was wiped out overnight. And it, it was, it was bad times, but you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And sometimes allowing the banks to fail or companies to fail. Why should all companies get a bailout? You know, if you're not, um, managing your debt correctly or you're not well capitalized or you're not running your business correctly, why should you be allowed a bailout? 
these CEOs um, and these big banks and big corporations, they should have a responsibility. Uh, you know, they shouldn't always be looking for a bailout every time something goes wrong. So yeah, I believe we're coming to the end of a long-term debt cycle. That's that's what I think. Um, probably within the next uh, 18 months to three years, we're going to see a form of a reset. But that's just my opinion. Do your own research. I'm going to wrap this up here because the rain is absolutely hammering down and I need a new peppermint tea because it's gone cold. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. I might start doing these um, small 20-minute uh, podcasts um, of updates quite frequently if you like it drop me a message and please give us a rate on itunes and spotify